What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. On today's show, we'll be in conversation with scholar and author Caleb Gale about his latest book, We Refuse to Forget, A True Story of Black Creek's American Identity and Power. A lot of times we think that people who are citizens of these nations are a part of strictly a racial category, when in actuality, these were autonomous, sovereign, self-governing nations. Many of its citizens were also Black people. In diving deep into these stories, what we do is get a fuller picture of nations that were here before America was even America. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Our guest today is Caleb Gale, an award-winning journalist who writes about race and identity. Gale is a professor at Northeastern University, a fellow at New America, Penn America, and Harvard's Radcliffe Institute of Advanced Studies, and is a visiting scholar at New York University. His writing has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, and where I first saw him, The Guardian as well as The Atlantic. He joins us today to talk about his book, We Refuse to Forget, A True Story of Black Creek's American Identity and Power, which amongst a lot of other important conversations looks at the history of Black folks inside of the Creek Nation, their expulsion from the Creek Nation, and the fight to reclaim the wholeness of their identity. Caleb, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me and for that wonderful introduction. That made me feel so special. Uh, I'm super excited uh, to to talk to you about this. Um, I want to start with a little bit about you, though, um, and and then tie that into why this particular story resonated with you. But let's just start with you're the the son of Jamaican immigrants and who somehow landed in Oklahoma, correct? I'm still trying to unwind why that happened. But yes, (laughs) that is, in fact, correct. What led you then? How did that then tie into you going down the road of investigating the relationship between enslaved Africans and indigenous peoples? Sure. It's really, oddly enough, it's both easy and incredibly hard to ignore that history in Oklahoma, right? It's easy in that, you know, a couple of miles south or north, east and west of Tulsa, and you're in a former black town that can you know imminently express this history, but in our classrooms we're completely left from it, right? And so in moving to Oklahoma, you know the the notion of kind of the middle of nowhere was clear, but what also was you know clearly communicated uh, both directly and indirectly was kind of this muted sepia tone, right? That there was there was nothing vivacious and colorful about that place, but when I got there and I met kids who said things like, I got Indian in me, it, it felt as if there was a splash of, of colorful detail that had been left out of my textbooks. Um, and so that's, that's what truly drew me. I've been haunted by it for decades. This notion that a person can be a multiplicity of things, that their, that their identities can in fact contain multitudes. I, I'm glad you you brought up that phrase because I I did giggle a bit. Uh, it's you know one of the first sentences uh, in the book. I got Indian in me, and I I grew up uh, with a family you know who who migrated from the south. Everybody's saying right like that that we, were, <laughs> we we had Indian in us. Now I will say that finally my dad did 23 and me, and it turns out no, absolutely we did not. But um, <laughs> what? 
I want you to expand a little bit on the answer you just give around the, the, the power of that sentence in terms of Black folks, particularly in the region where you hail, you know, you hail from, holding on to that piece of their history, a history, as you mentioned, is not taught. Yeah, you know, I think that there's a certain potency that those kids um, who looked just like me, who talked just like me, you know, who, who were going to the same kinds of Black churches that I went to had this other story to tell, but didn't really know enough about their own stories to tell them, right? Um, there's a potency that comes with knowing that what you see isn't all that you get in front of you. And so in kind of exculpating and in, 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 in diving deep into these stories, what we do is get a fuller picture of America, right? And not just America, but of nations that were here before America was even America, of nations that sprawled wide, that had a very different and more unique and admittedly more inclusive approach to how to be and how to become. Um, and so when these kids were, were telling me these stories, or at least just telling me that they had Indian in them, they weren't just saying that, right? It was an indictment of what we do in America, which is oftentimes find the simplest story to tell that oftentimes excludes so very many, right? In an effort to oftentimes valorize a lot of people who ought not be valorized in the way that they are. Um, what these kids were doing were, was that they were saying, look, there's more to us. There's more to a lot of people. If America would just sit and listen, if America would just sit and remember, and if America, excuse the pun here, would refuse to forget. And it's not just right that, that America finds the simplest stories to tell. They intentionally figure out which stories are going to help maintain the status quo. And I would argue um, also which stories will disenfranchise folks from finding the wholeness of themselves and thus empowering them to, to forge pathways to liberation from oppression. I, correct. And I appreciate you for, for helping me take it there um, because I, I think you, like my editor, you know, often, I think as a kid from Oklahoma who grew up in classrooms where questions of liberation were not uh, entertained, oftentimes I still find even in my writing, forcing myself to get there. And my editor, who is not a black person, who is not a black man, who's not from that part of the country, still is always asking me to go there. So to, to your point, yes, correct, right? Like in my state right now, right, where we are actively trying to validate educators for providing a comprehensive view of history, and calling that CRT, critical race theory, um, just the retelling of American history in its fullness, right, um, presents a non-simplistic history retelling that indicts us for the things we've done wrong. But in so doing, right, and I think this is where liberation truly does come from, is when we ascribe to people the fullness of their humanity. And that's what we're ripping away from people when we don't, when we tell these simple stories about how America might have been founded by strictly white dudes who are just awesome and amazing and never meant any ill, right? When we, when we obscure or obfuscate and gloss over that history, right, all that we're doing, right, is that we are, we're ripping away the fullness from people, the fullness of people's humanity who had the chance to be both good and bad, right? Who 
could do amazing things and write amazing things on paper that we might call our constitution or our, our, our declaration of independence, but also equally could do things that were so vile and inhumane, right? And so that, that I think is part of what hopefully this book is in conversation with. Hopefully that's what the book is pushing us to do. Yeah, and Caleb, I wasn't going to go here next, but but because you 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 sort of are are taking us there, people that could both the fullness of people's humanity, people that could do so good and so bad. Can you talk about why that also led you to defining some stuff in this book, uh, including racists and racism? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think you know, I I have to give so much credit not just to Dr. Ibram Kendi, you know author of Stand from the Beginning and How to Be an Anti-Racist, an Anti-Racist Baby. And I'm sure he's got a, got a whole line of other books left to go. Um, but also a ton of other people who really tried to kind of destigmatize the term racism, right? Uh, and racist, right? Like if we focus on the outcomes that lead to differential experiences, ones that are worse for some and better for others, and the worst for some happen to look a certain way or might have a particular hue to their skin tone, and the ones for whom are better off do not, right? That's racism. And we can we can call a spade a spade without making it personal, right? And so it's important that we are able to do that because then it gives us the opportunity to be more honest with history and more honest subsequently with ourselves, our present and our future, not just our past. And so to some great extent, I think like what the what the what I what I try to establish pretty early on in the book is that we're going to use these terms deftly and precisely, right? With such searing precision so as to make sure that we understand that no, there, there are people who have done some really racist things. And I don't necessarily care so much about the intention, so much as I care about the impact on people, people who have been so significantly, historically and presently marginalized. Thank right, Caleb Gale, for, for much of what we just talked about, I'm going to spend some time on the, the early chapters of the books and go through some basics and some history. I don't want to assume uh, listeners are, are aware. Um, just talk about like what what are the tribes that make up the Creek Nation and where is where is what we know uh, what where is what we uh, understand as America today did do they exist? Sure. So you know historically, um, the Muskogee Creek Nation was an amalgamation, a federation of many different tribes, right? Many many different tribes um, with different customs and uh, uh, traditions, so on and so forth. And we could find them along the, you know, coasts of Florida, Georgia, um, parts of the Carolinas, the Mississippi and Alabama, parts of the Deep South, right? Um, and until um, colonizers showed up, the, the, the prospect was that they could stay there forever, but they did not, right? Um, and just to gloss over hundreds of years of history and skip to probably one of the most vile presidents we've had, Andrew Jackson, who helped to implement the Indian Removal Act, they and uh, many other nations and tribes were forced to move west and they relocated to Oklahoma. Um, and as recently as, as 2021, through the McGirt case um, before the Supreme Court, um, it, it was reestablished that a, a good chunk of eastern Oklahoma is still the Creek Nations, at least jurisdictionally. But historically, that's that's where a great deal of their lives were led, their, their traditions, their, their, their capital. 
um, like any other nation. I really want to drive home the point that a lot of times we think, uh, uh, again, because we've we've been oversimplified, right? Uh, our history has to believe and think that people who are citizens of these nations are are a part of strictly a racial category. When in actuality, these were autonomous, sovereign, self-governing nations that had a multiplicity of people and types, customs, traditions, and so on, right? And so that's that's where geographically they would be located. And because there was a diversity of people and people types and backgrounds and cultural distinctions, um, it also included people who, who were Black, right? And that was the that was the hard part for even me, someone who grew up in it, who heard kids saying I got Indian in me. That was one of the hardest things for me to wrap my head around when I was initially for making my forays into this book, is that many of its citizens were also Black people, right? Um, we can get into that later, but that's that for your listeners, I really want to make sure I drove home. Yep, and, and we're, we're going to start to get into that now, um, but again, starting sort of historically and in, in layout for us as you do in the book about at least what is believed to have been the first contact between uh, the Creek Nation and, and Africans who were kidnapped and brought to American shores. Sure. Yeah. We might often think that Black people at first came to these shores um, in, in many different time periods, but one of the earliest that was identified with Angie Dubow, a very famed historian, um, was in 1530 um, when Black people who came over supposedly with Hernando de Soto as, as clearly slaves um, interacted with the Kusa tribe, um, which is a tribe that you know, now has been amalgamated into and federated within the Creek Nation. Um, and it was understood that in many cases, a lot of those Black people um, would find refuge in the Kuzu tribe who also found the practices of slavery quite detestable um, for, for clear and obvious reasons. But that's one of the first instances that's been recorded and detailed by people like Andrew DeBoa, again, a famed historian who's no longer with us. In, in terms of Creek Nation, it's not that slavery did not exist inside of the Creek Nation before Europeans introduced the brutality of chattel slavery to this country, but the nature was very different, correct? Incredibly different, right? And you can even find, you know, traces of slavery within within Western African traditions like kinship slavery, very similar to what one would see in the Creek Nation where, you know, you weren't, unlike chattel slavery, destined to be less than human. Um, and your kids and your kids' kids and your kids' kids' kids would face the very same kind of mislabeled representation as not being human, but property and means of production. Um, you were able to, you know, yes, work on that land and whatnot, but also break bread and sit eye to eye with people and be considered equal. And on top of that, there were, you know, means by which is, let's say you got married to someone who was Creek or there were other ways to become adopted into the Creek nation, right? To become a citizen, that slavery was not a permanent marker of less than um, for both you and your posterity. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Cap Brooks. I'm in conversation with Caleb Gale about his book, We Refuse to Forget, A True Story of Black Creek's American Identity and Power. Caleb Gale, lay out for us. So, the, so there's this interaction. There's there's um, uh, uh, detestation for the, for the ways in which Europeans are engaging in the enslavement of Africans. How does this then facilitate pathways to citizenship for Black folks inside of the Creek Nation? 
Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, there, there were several, right? One could become just adopted in, right? They could consider you a citizen on their own merits for their own reasons. <laughs> you could be married, you could marry in, right? Um, uh, by virtue of you marrying in, you would become a citizen and as such, so would your kids. Um, but also, um, you know, later on, they, you know, it's formally established ways, thanks to the work of one particular um, Black Creek citizen named Cal Tom, they formalized those ways in 1866 for Black people, either formally enslaved or not, to become full citizens of the Creek Nation. And I, I'm an organizer, so I, I look at things to a specific lens and, and, you know, we talk a lot about the importance of unification, particularly among mar marginalized, oppressed, um, brutalized communities. What was the power, perhaps even potential power, in the unification of, of two groups that were being terrorized by white folks at this time? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that's that's a great question in part because it, it leads us into kind of the cultural practice that many people within marginalized groups um, um, engage in, which is the, the power of kind of the ever-expanding moral imagination, right? Like imagine, right, if, if, if that kind of ongoing unification effort had taken root in place, right? Had there not been a pitting of, pitting against one another at uh, various groups um, for scarcity of resources, one of those resources being identity, either in the Creek Nation or in America, right? So the the opportunity set was wide and plenteous, right, um, for that, right? Especially because by virtue of being a citizen of the Creek Nation, right, for Black people in particular, right, was 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 completely different than in the United States, where you were guaranteed land, you were guaranteed opportunity, um, you were guaranteed a place that came with some tie to the firmament of, of your location, um, uh, the sort of opportunity set that just was not available to Black people, regardless of the ways and manifestations of that being promised to them. I want to talk about this uh, this pitting uh, against each other, and let's let's lay some, some uh, accountability here. One of the folks that you talk about in the book is Benjamin Hawkins. Tell us about him. Yeah, you know, I mean, for all intents and purposes, you know, Benjamin Hawkins is is kind of a, you know, for some would be a bit of an unsung hero. This, this you know, wonderkind, uh, brilliant, polyglot, <laughs> political leader, former senator, attendee of constitutional conventions, you know, uh, he is, he is the, you know, um, the symbol for many of what kind of American ingenuity was specifically when it comes to public service. But more than anything, he served as kind of the agent for the Creek Nation. So the, the person dispatched by the federal government um, to administer the affairs of the United States government um, with the Muskogee Creek Nation, right? And he fancied himself and others who were not members of the Creek Nation uh, fancied him to be a friend of, of the Indian, the friend of the Creek, as it were, um, as, it was, as it was listed in newspapers. But in actuality, you know, he really introduced, right? He was the person that George Washington deputized 
to be the person to fix the Indian problem, as it were, right? And he introduced to them ways of operating and being, whether it was, you know, being more engaged in market efficiencies, introducing concepts of privatization where there had been communalism, introducing, you know, aspects of slavery that were more of the chattel orientation that had been formerly used in practice within the Creek Nation. He, he was a detestable individual, as you mentioned, but of course, right, like the historical record oftentimes doesn't even mention him, right, even though he served four successive presidents, um, doesn't even mention him. Uh, and when he is mentioned, it's usually kind of the meteoric rise that he had, but that rise came at a cost. His influence came at a cost. It came at the cost of the expansive kind of moral imagination and way of approaching identity that the Muscogee Creek Nation had. And those effects, those negative effects trickle down directly to its black citizens as well. 1866, the treaty between the United States and the Creek Nation. What were the views expressed at that time? And then go into a little bit more detail about how those shifted as a result of, of this division. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, the, the reality was, is that after the Civil War, for your, for your listeners, after the Civil War, right, um, the United States government, after it was trying to both consolidate its, its federal power after these rogue states seceded, right, it also felt the need to then revisit every single one of the treaties that they had with what became known as the five civilized tribes, right? A very terrible term to use, but let's call them the five tribes, the Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw, Creek, and Seminole. And because in some cases, like the Choctaw and Chickasaw, they aligned themselves very clearly with the South and others had some split loyalties, they voided all, as punishment, the United States government kind of voided past treaties and said, okay, we're gonna come back to the table fresh. So. This peace treaty, right, um, also meant the voiding or at least the limiting and loss of some autonomy, some land, so on and so forth. But in so doing, right, one of the people who negotiated this treaty, right, was a guy named Cao Tom, um, who himself was a black man and a chief who rose to significant prominence during one of the ugliest battles that occurred not so much in America, but on its peripheries in Indian territory called the Battle of Honey Springs. Um, and in that treaty, it included not just emancipation one year after the Civil War ended, right, um, in 1866, but it also provided citizenship for Black people within the Creek Nation, right? And that's a powerful thing, as we talked about earlier, because that then entitled them to significant amounts of land, right? Far more than the 40 acres of a mule that that uh, others had kind of quipped about uh, before, it gave them opportunity in a place that still had at least some shred of hold to significant autonomy, to land, to opportunity, to the opportunity to generate wealth for both their families and others. Right. And we're, we're going to get to the importance of that in, in, in specifically generational wealth when we talk a, a little bit more about the descendants uh, of Cal Tom and others um, going to do sort of a big jump because well, time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, so, so things are sort of 
trucking along. And um, then there's a, a federal lawsuit, right, filed by the Creeks in 1976 um, in an effort to shake off some of the paternalistic measures imposed by the Treaty uh, of 1866. But this also has an outcome for folks that up until that time, well, and still do, um, identifying themselves as Black Creeks. Sure. Yeah. So uh, the, the case you're referring to, and I'll, I'll skip past some of the details, which your or listeners can get some of that legal intrigue when they read. Um, Harjo versus Kleppe in, enabled and entitled the, the Creek Nation, as well as others, to greater levels of autonomy about how they made decisions. And I don't need to go into all those what those decisions were that they got greater control over, but suffice to say, they got a greater degree of control, right? One year later, um, you know, a convene, a convening of the, the, the tribal council was, was held and Claude Cox, who was chief of, of the nation at that time, really leveraged it as an opportunity to readjust who got to be considered on the citizenship roles of the Muscogee Creek Nation, right? Who got to be a citizen, right? That, that degree of flexibility, right? And it's, it's tough too, right? It's almost a bit of a paradox that um, even, even Phil Deloria, who wrote a review of my book in The New Yorker recently kind of refers to, which is, you know, it's one thing for American law to bring these tribal governments um, to account when it comes to how they treat their black citizens. But there's also a significant problem where um, that lack of ability to self-govern autonomously um, also is a problem for them, right? There is, a, there is an inherent conflict there. Um, but in so doing, a lot of Black people, majority of their Black people, most of their Black people who were considered what we would call Creek freedmen were, were effectively no longer, you know, they, were, they became instantly too Black to be considered Creek. Caleb Gale, I want to dive in just a little bit deeper into how the new definition of who was a Creek and who was not was determined um, by blood. I would talk a little bit about the Dawes roles, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. The the Dawes role is 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 critical, right? And it's kind of a linchpin of much of the book. Um, and without 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 uh, joining on too long, you know, it's really important to remember that um, as we talked about earlier, the Creek Nation had, like any other nation, its right to declare who was a citizen, who wasn't, and what paths they pursued to do so. But the Dawes Commission, founded uh, by Henry Dawes, a senator from Massachusetts, um, uh, was able to get something called the Dawes Act passed, which enabled him to form a commission. And that commission was deputized with again trying to address right <laughs> what what people like George Washington had called you know an Indian problem when in actuality it, it, it wasn't them that was the problem right um, essentially what it did do right was it <laughs> just talk about its effects right um, aside from empowering white people to come to Indian territory and determine who was going to be Creek and who was, who was going to be Cherokee and who wasn't, based on shoddy approaches of, <laughs> to genealogical analysis and research, to, to um, eyeballing people, right? People became by someone's eye, right? 
someone's able to ability to look at someone and say that person might be a bit too black. Let's put them on the Creek Freedman role. And while these distinctions didn't mean nearly as much to the Creek Nation at that time, it set the stage for over 70 years later for someone like a Clark Cox to then say, you know what, these people are not by blood members of the Creek Nation. These people are Creek Freedmen. These people are not. And so as such, the notion of blood quantum, which is still used today, is based sadly on fallacious scientific mumbo jumbo, right? It's not, it is not, it is, it is essentially uh, what some white folks were empowered to do by the U.S. government that wanted more land in Indian territory. And the effect was it lost many of these Creek Nation members, as well as Cherokee and others, 90 million acres and set the stage for a different kind of discrimination much later on. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Cap Brooks, in conversation with Caleb Gale about his book, We Refuse to Forget, a true story of Black Creek's American identity and power. I'm going to pull us uh, even further into to the present. I, I, I want to talk um, a bit more about Cal Tom and his descendants. And can you talk about the Simmons family? Sure, sure. Right. I, I think the, you know, the Simmons family, you know, the, 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 the folks who came after Cal Tom, you know, uh, because of the land they held by birthright, by virtue of being citizens of the Creek Nation, right? Jake Simmons Jr., um, who came a couple of generations after Cal Tom, was able to become an incredibly successful cattle rancher, right? He wrote in Southern Workmen in the early 1900s, like, you know, my 10 room house is huge, right? Uh, something that I know personally that I can't attest to uh, today, um, mm-hmm. you know, where he was doing thousands of dollars in those days, right? Weekly in, in, in cow revenue and not necessarily to put a capitalist gloss on this, but he had found his own means to be prosperous for him and his family and his community, right? His son, Jake Simmons Jr. became, you know, a venerable uh, energy tycoon, especially when it came to the leasing of land and figuring out how to how to strike interesting deals, but that's because the land that he had had oil on it, right? The land that was deeded to him by virtue of being a citizen of the Creek Nation had oil in it, right? Um, that's the sort of opportunity. But then, you know, you you cast the, 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 the story a little further, and though there is great opportunity, there's also great pain and sadness. I don't want to advance the story too far and get too ahead of my skis here, but that's that's kind of the, the sad trajectory is that there, there was significant prosperity on their own terms, right? Followed by, you know, intense marginalization because prosperity wasn't necessarily the name of the game in the eyes oftentimes of this government in this country. You mentioned, you know, putting a capitalist gloss on it. And, and I, I, I sat with that, you know, as, as you said it. And I, I hear that. And, right, it, it, we can't, it can't be overstated or stated enough, I guess, that that not just in, in sort of what happened here um, t- to folks, but just in general, the inability of Black folks who, who boomed in various places, right, during this time in American history 
the U.S. government and white folks finding a way to interrupt that boom, thus preventing the passing down of generational wealth, and it, the, how directly that's reflected in our conditions today. Deeply, right? It, <laughs> that's, that's such a good point because you don't have to go too far up from you know Haskell, Oklahoma, where the Simmons family was to, to Black Wall Street, uh, which I've also written about extensively, where... Yeah, like no aid came their way. And if you look right now at a good chunk of Black Wall Street, the zip codes that's occupied, again, Black Wall Street wouldn't have been possible as a quick note without the contributions of Black citizens of various um, uh, Indigenous nations like the Cherokee and the Creek. But when you look at what Black Wall Street looks like now, the zip code that, I, that it sits in has an average life expectancy over 10 years less than 74133, which is just a few miles south, right? And a whole lot less black, right? It, it's, it's unnerving to think about what sort of opportunity was laid by the wayside, right? Um, in not ensuring the lifting of all boats, right? The lifting of all opportunities, the lifting of all um, prospects for not just success, but for peace and opportunity. And I'm just going to circle back, right, to what we talked about at the beginning and and the, the erasure of history, the erasure of understanding uh, how we got from there to here why the GOP and other right-wing forces are fighting so hard to not have history taught um, and the impact on us, right? Like if we don't understand that this was done to us, if we don't have a way to fight back against the, the implication, both subtle and not so subtle, right? That somehow our conditions are solely and only our fault. It, it truly inhibits recovery. Without a doubt, right? I, <laughs> The, to be honest, when you even look at Tulsa, when you look at um, the case of just Black Oklahoma, a place that once had 50 Black towns, right, the only conclusion you're allowed to draw as a kid growing up in Oklahoma, right, um, is that something was wrong with us. Something was the matter with us. While all these other people were succeeding and there was boom time after boom time and every depression and recession, they seemed to weather why we, for whatever reason, uh, were just completely unable to. The only conclusion, the pathology that develops, not just in the minds of white people, but also sadly in our minds as black people, as our, in our minds as marginalized people, is that it's our fault. But perhaps knowing this history perhaps knowing not just this particular history, but using this particular history as a launching pad into our own personal histories, plural, right, can undo some of that, right, can can help to disrupt that pathology that's so very dangerous. Absolutely agree. You're listening to Law and Disorder Family. I'm in conversation with Caleb Gale about his book, We Refuse to Forget, A True Story of Black Creek's American Identity and Power, um, pulling us a little further uh, down the historical timeline. I want to talk about the Simmons family and their lawsuits, the legal battles. What, what types of legal battles or, or legal, legal efforts um, have been rolled out to try to, to be, to get black folks reinstated to the Creek nation? 
Yeah, I mean, it's been a long-standing effort to try and get um, black people reinstated in that nation, right? Um, and it's it predates even sometimes the involvement of some of the Simmons family, right? That, you know, people have been making that effort. And it's not just in the Creek Nation, right? I mean, as of last week, and this is August 11th, as of like a week and a half ago, Marilyn Van, who is a black citizen of the Cherokee Nation and now sits on one of his most powerful boards, at one point, she did not have access to the citizenship that that she had by, you know, dint of her ancestry, right? Um, but she launched, you know, legal battles to do so. And for her, she found the greatest level of success in the U.S. District Court of the District of Columbia. So, you know, some Black Creek citizens have gone through Creek courts and they've tried their hand at uh, the district court most recently uh, a few years back where they were dismissed without prejudice, which means that they can come back again um, and do the same. And so, you know, we'll have to wait on tenterhooks to see what happens. And so I think, though, the work that they're doing in the interim, right, all of the traditions, all the kind of caring of those oral histories, the constant, you know, invitation to, to speak more about the topic, to learn more about the topic, opening themselves up to, to journalists and authors such as myself and others around the country to ensure that their stories don't go unheard is equally just as important, right? Because this, this stuff lays the foundation for a better understanding of what's happening, right? So I, I think that the, the, the effort is ongoing and comprehensive is how I would describe it. Yeah, I picked up the book and, and, and was really happy that the story was being told. And as, as someone who has pretty okay analysis of white supremacy and its impact on not just black folks, but indigenous folks, right? I don't know. I mean, this goes back to, to the importance of the definitions, you know, that we, we talked about at the beginning, racism and racism. Being able to hold the reality of what was done to black folks, what is being done to black folks, right? Here and not doing the job of white supremacy for them and further targeting a targeted community. Am I making sense? Mm -hmm. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Right. I think that's why it was really important. <laughs> you know, I think one of the concerns that I had in writing this book is just how much work had to be done to really paint a picture of how the culprit here is not the Simmons family. It is not current citizens of the Creek Nation. The culprit here is white supremacy. It's racism. And that, and how formally ensconced it was into how we did things in America, right? How, how colonialism had found its way into almost every single crevice, right? And I always worried that, man, that might not be seen. That might be seen as just throat clearing. <laughs> but, right, right. you know, I appreciate you for, for pointing that out because, again, like the, the, the culprit here, right, is, is, is this overwhelming act or seemingly overwhelming force of white supremacy and its kind of intricate tie to the construction of America, both figuratively and literally, right? And I think that that's, that's where we need to affix our gaze, Right. It's not it's not in targeting one group that has been so systematically right as recently as this most recent Supreme Court term. Right. 
uh, in Castro Huerta versus the state of Oklahoma. Like that, just the just the further erosion of autonomous jurisdiction over how they want to govern themselves is 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 not a thing of the past. It happens right now, and so I, I think to some extent, right? I I hope that readers, I mean your listeners, who eventually hope that I hope will become readers, will pinpoint their ire and their justifiable and righteous indignation at that which is white supremacy and racism, right? And how right now, especially in the United States, we're at this critical juncture where now even our kids, especially maybe not so much where you are, but at least, you know, in places like Oklahoma, in parts and suburbs around the country, right, where it seems as if our very stories are under attack, right? And I would say even I guess our stories not even told that well are under attack. That I think is that's the that's the man. That's just another manifestation of what we've been seeing happening both throughout the history that I detail in the book, and even now, right now, in the United States of America. I think this is a continuation of the question. It might be me asking the same question in a different way. Sure, <laughs> but I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it anyway. Uh, as as someone who struggles for Black liberation, right, and 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 who in, uh, engages to me in red black solidarity struggles. One of the questions I've often asked myself is, is how I do that, how I engage in that struggle on land that doesn't belong to me. And I would love your thoughts around that and also um, your thoughts around where, right, this tension is probably not the right word, but this this the struggle, right, between uh, Black Creeks and the Creek Nation sit inside of that conversation. Yeah, 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 no, for sure. So I think there are a couple of things going on. I think one, like that, that concern that you have, I, I just want to amplify it. And I, I don't, I don't need me to validate it. But aside <laughs> from just saying that I feel that too, right? And there's no way that I could have engaged in this work without recognizing it. That's one. Two, right, there have been... <laughs> That my next book centrally focuses on the problematic life of a guy who made it his mission to try and hit black guy, unmistakably black guy, not passing as anything else, black guy, Edward P. McCabe, tried to colonize, his words, colonize Indian territory for black people, turn into an all-black state, right? The, the problematic elements there are just so pronounced, right? Um, and so I think it's not, it's, there have been attempts to do things that are, do that in a way that are even more aggressive, shall we say, and deeply problematic. I think third, I think it's really okay. I think we have to, we have to, we have to kind of embrace, it's part of being human. I think oftentimes in the struggle for liberation for those who are marginalized, I think sometimes we become, and I'm speaking just for myself, so I become worried about whether or not I can be full-throated and also make a bunch of grievous mistakes um, in the effort for that liberation, right? And and to realize that it's okay to feel like I'm speaking, you know, living my life on tenterhooks, trying not to trample upon the lives and stories of those who were here first, right? But rather that there's, if we understand that 
more and more of our history, if we're careful, has certain some degree of intertwinement, right? That we have, in many cases, a common culprit who has devastated the lives and livelihoods that we've all tried to build here, right? Um, that interrupted, in the case of the Black Creeks and the Creek Nation, interrupted very much so a much more curious and interesting admixture of accommodation, right? Uh, and unification and togetherness that just that just seems to can't really be fostered in the same way today, that 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 the culprit who disrupted that and made it seem as if it's impossible today, right, still exists. Right. And I think if we if we centralize our focus there, right, then I think it becomes a bit easier to kind of accept the very human mistakes we might make, the human concerns we might have about struggling for that liberation. Um, and realizing that our not so much our entire fates, but partially our fates are not so much linked, but if we can dismantle a lot of the efforts to disenfranchise people, to marginalize people of all kinds, right, we might perhaps produce a better tomorrow for each other. I don't wanna you know, launch into some political speech or some speech or political ad, but I truly believe that. As someone who is a deep pessimist, <laughs> I, that's the, that's the strain of optimism that I do have because I can look to history when people have done it time and time again. Well, the tagline of this show, Caleb Gale, is expose, agitate, and build. And that was a whole word of building there. So I want to thank you. Love it. That uh, is the word we're going to end on. Family, you have been listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Our guest today has been Caleb Gale, an award-winning journalist who writes about race and identity. He's a professor at Northeastern University, a fellow at New America, Penn America, and Harvard's Ratcliffe Institute of Advanced Studies and a visiting scholar at New York University. His writing has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, The Guardian, and The Atlantic. He joined us today to talk about his book, We Refuse to Forget, A True Story of Black Creek's American Identity and Power. Hope you'll come back when the next book comes out. Um, and Caleb Gale, if folks want to find you on the socials, where should they go? Yep, you can follow me on Twitter at Gale, Caleb, G-A-Y-L-E, Caleb, C-A-L-E-B, or just find me as Caleb Gale on Instagram. No spaces, no capitalizations, no M dashes, no nothing, just Caleb Gale <laughs> all mashed together. <laughs> right on. Caleb Gale, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Rask and the Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>